Welcome to the Deeper Dive Podcast, brought to you by the OC Church of Christ. The Deeper Dive Podcast is about going deeper into God's Word, learning new insight, and taking a fresh look at the verses that impact our daily lives. We may do an in-depth study of a certain topic or a book in the Bible. So get your scuba gear on and let's dive deep into God's Word. Today we have the privilege of listening to Robert Carrillo, an evangelist and member of the ICOC Teaching Committee, teach on biblical hermeneutics and gender roles. Here's Robert. All right. Good evening, everybody. Great to see you. It's great to be here with you guys tonight. It's a treat. I was looking forward to our time together. It's been a couple years since I've been here. Uh, it's been a while. And of course, it's been a couple years since I've been in a lot of places for a lot of us. But uh, it's great. It, it's really, really great to, to be here. I'm thankful for the Stevensons and your invitation and uh, being able to uh, get even just a little bit of time to connect with you guys. You guys are right next to us. I'll tell you a little secret. I'm actually just right across the line between Orange County and L.A. County. <laughs> I could throw a rock and hit Orange County. That's how close I live, actually. But, um, but uh, you know, and, and I also want to, you know, bring greetings, saludos from the metro region, your neighbors in the, the mighty metro region. It's been such an incredible joy for Michelle and I to be there. We've been there now almost two years, a year and 10 months, and uh, we love, 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 love that region. Such an incredible part of the L.A. church, and, uh, and what a wonderful family that is. Uh, Michelle couldn't be here tonight. Uh, she's actually visiting. Well, this is why she couldn't be here right now. She's hanging out with our granddaughter, so... Uh, I am shamelessly showing a baby to get everybody's hearts warmed up here. And our baby is just so incredible. She's our granddaughter. Um, so tonight I'm going to jump right on in because uh, we got a lot of ground to cover in not that much a time. This is a subject. I spent nine weeks going through this in, in Metro. And of course, I'm not going to try to cover all that. But we're going to try to get down to the nitty gritty, okay? As Nacho Libre would say, the nitty gritty of getting into scripture and understanding it, the topic of gender roles and women's leadership and how that works in the church is, as you probably already know, an incredibly hot topic right now in our fellowship, but also worldwide. You know, it's not just, I, I remember I was watching the World Cup, the Women's World Cup, and they won, of course, the United States won, and right as they won, the entire crowd Thousands of people started cheering, equal pay, equal pay, equal pay, because it's been such a, a terrible thing that the, the women's team of World Cup was getting, I don't remember, I don't know the difference in salary, but it was ridiculously low, like 20% of what the men were getting, even though the men have never even made it to the semifinals, and the women have won the World Cup multiple times, you know, but, but it, it is a topic out there, right? And mostly what we're going to do tonight, I'm just going to be up front with you, is, is tackle how we use the scriptures and how we study. I want to give you the tools to be able to approach an issue like this. And these tools are good for any issue. And there are many, as you know, many other issues. And there'll be even more big issues coming down the pike that the church has to grapple with and figure out. And I will say right up, from the, right up front that there are godly people who will land in different places. What I want to sh share tonight is a little of why people land in different places and what are the issues in biblical interpretation and particularly 
in hermeneutics. You know, classic scripture we all know very well. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. You know, we, 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 it, it is on us to take the time to learn how to correctly handle the scriptures. And that is incredibly important, right? Uh, we believe that the word of God is life. The word of God is a double-edged sword. We know the value and the importance of it. And I just want to say this. I know you can't clap for yourself, so clap for the person next to you. Thank you for being here and taking the time to study the scriptures. To dig a little bit deeper, you know. And, and uh, for me, this is what I love. I love digging in the scriptures. And, and I'm a Bible nerd, and I confess that, but... But uh, I love it when people take the time to really study. And that's what we're doing tonight. We're taking the time to dig a little deeper and, and, and understand these, really, the, the, the issues of Bible interpretation and hermeneutics so that we know how to read these scriptures. Part of the problem out there in the world is people just jump to quick conclusions. They don't know what they're talking about. They'll take a word out of context, a scripture out of context, and you can have five different opinions and five different arguments, and every one of them uses scripture. So we have to know how to properly handle the Word of God. Amen? Um, three keys that I'll put out there right up front is, is having a basic understanding of biblical interpretation. Everybody doesn't need to be experts. Everybody doesn't need to, to be able to read and write Greek and, and Hebrew. But somebody has got to be able to be in the room that can interpret it into English. And then everybody has to be able to have the basic skills of how to understand it, right? Um, understanding the challenges of hermeneutics. We're going to talk a little bit about that. You know, who's this guy Herman and why, does, why do we need to know him? Um, and, and helpful spiritual mindset and heartset for disciples of Jesus. Because just as important as understanding is love, faith, grace, mercy, kindness. Understanding the message of the scriptures is just is important. So I'm going to talk a little bit about interpretation. What do we typically do when we talk about interpreting scriptures? You know, you read a scripture, uh, we read it. Uh, what does it say to me? What does it mean? How does it apply? How do I practice this? That's, I would say, just the most base, in, this, in a good way, the most basic how we approach the scriptures, right? What is this saying to me? How do I apply it? And how do I practice this? Now, if we dug a little deeper and we dig a little deeper, if you go to Bible school, you learned really the, the, the uh, more in-depth academic approach, which uh, this, this is it's called biblical criticism. And it doesn't mean criticism as in somebody who's negative. It means criticism as in analyzing, uh, the, uh, analyzing the material. And being able to distinguish between what is true, what is false, what is right, what is wrong, what is actually there. It's a much more scientific approach, but it helps us parse out some of the, the subtleties in the scripture. So things like textual criticism, which is concerned with establishing the original or most authoritative text. Like which, if we want to talk about any subject, which text do we need to read? Which scriptures do we need to look at? And which ones apply the most and which ones don't apply that much. You know, which ones are just generally applicable and which ones say specifically what we want to know. The philological criticism, which is the study of biblical languages for an accurate knowledge of vocabulary, grammar, and style of the period. So we understand the, 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 
the, the, the language and what does that have for us? What do we need to understand about this? Language is really important. And we always have to remember, we're studying, we're reading a translation. We're not, most of us in here don't read Greek and don't read Hebrew, but we're reading somebody's translation of the Greek and Hebrew. And not that, that, not, not that that's anything bad, but it's good to know that and keep that in mind. What's in the language? And, and, and I'll tell you this, when you take the time to dig deeper and look at the language, there's a whole nother level of treasures and wonderful things to, to discover in the original languages. There's so many things, like you take the word, a simple common word, probably everybody knows, agape, right? Everybody knows agape, right? Love. We take a concept like love, well in English, we just have one word, love. But in Greek, there's stergos, there's phileo, there's agape, there's eros, and believe me, they mean very different things. You know, brotherly love, romantic love, family love, uh, you know, or unconditional love. All of them are translated. When, Je when Jesus tells Peter, do you love me, there's two different words being used here. There's phileo being used, and then there's agape being used. But when we read it in English, it's all just love. There's something there, believe me. Um, the literary criticism, which focuses on various library genres. You know, what kind of writing is this? What, what's embedded in the text? Um, in order to uncover the evidence concerning data of composition, authorship, original function, all, all these things are important to know, okay, what is this saying and why is it saying this? Tradition criticism, which attempts to trace the development of the oral traditions that preceded written texts. You know, if, if obviously if you take the Sermon on the Mount, there wasn't anybody there with a recorder recording it. You know, and it wasn't just, you know, they didn't, they didn't hand out, you know, leather-bound NIVs, right? So how did it get from Jesus standing on a hillside speaking to the leather-bound Bible that you're holding in your hands, you know, or that you have, or that's on your phone? Um, and, and the steps that got there and what happened with that. Uh, form criticism, which defines the written material to the pre-literally, uh, pre-literally, forms such as a parable or a hymn. How we read the Bible. If we read Genesis chapter 1, if you'll notice in your written, in your paper Bibles, it's always indented. Why is that? Because it's a poem. It's poetry. And so it should be read like poetry. It's poetic, I should say. It's not just, just a poem, but it's poetic. It's written as a literally, a literal art form. So if I said, you know, Roses are red and violets are blue because you're my best friend, I love you. You wouldn't take that and analyze it and see, are all roses red? You know what? There's, there's roses that are white. He's a liar. There's roses that are yellow. He's making this up. This can't be true. I can show you where it's wrong. That, that would totally be the wrong way to approach that, right? But yet people do that. They'll take the first part of Genesis and analyze it. And, you know, are the fixes, are the physics correct here? Could that be true? Redaction criticism examines the way various pieces of, of the tradition have been assembled into the, the final literary composition by the author or editor. How did it come about? How did it get put together? What was the intent of it? You know, why is it that Matthew has five major sermons? Why, why did he do that? Why did he organize the gospel that way? Why is it that in Matthew, in the, in the first Gospels, Jesus clearing the temples at the end, but in John, Jesus clearing the temple, I think is right up front, like chapter 3. It's right at the beginning of his ministry. Why is that? You know, and it's important to know those things if you really want to understand it at that level. So 
just to briefly go through, you look at the language, you look at the type, you look at the background, you look at the setting, the cultural tense, the general context, the audience. Um, you know, all these things are important to understand and to know. You know, I've heard, you know, probably one of the classic scriptures, everywhere I go, I hear about this scripture. People talk about this scripture. Jeremiah 29, 11. Now, raise your hand if you know what that scripture is. Right? See, most of us know that scripture. How about Jeremiah 29, 15? <laughs> no? Yeah. We all know 29, 11, right? For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you. Okay, right? We all know that. Who was that said to? Was it said to us? No, it was said to the Jews in exile, right, about coming back. So it's important to know that. Now, I've heard somebody preach, well, we can't be using that scripture because it wasn't written for us. I would totally disagree with that. It was recorded for us so that we could know God's heart. No, it's not literally, we're not the first audience in it. And that's true for most of scripture, right? That we're not, the, I mean, the letter Galatians was written to the churches of Galatia, not to the churches of Orange County or LA County or, you know, but yet it all applies to us, right? We understand where we are in the scheme of things. And that's important. And that becomes really important in understanding some of these scriptures that deal with women's leadership and the role of women. Understanding what's the difference, what was just for the church in Ephesus or Corinth, what is universal for all time. That, that's a big deal, right? A lot of great tools out there for those of you that want to dig deeper. And I know a lot of you older Christians, you probably have these in your library already. Commentaries. Probably the most common one that I run into always is Barclays, you know, which is great. It's great, but it's, it's, it's one kind. There's a lot of different kinds. Uh, lexicons, word study books, interlinear Bible. Uh, and, there, and now there's so many great apps out there. I, I, don't, I wouldn't even begin to be able to. Uh, list all the great apps that are out there and available for doing deeper Bible study. And, you know, deeper Bible study isn't needed for just regular life. And we can open our Bibles and just read, and the Word of God will change us and help us and direct us and guide us along. But if we're going to get into really understanding certain things, then we've got to dig a little deeper. And we've got to learn how in, uh, to use these tools. There's some terms that you're going to hear a lot, that come up a lot in Bible studies, hermeneutics, exegesis, and expository preaching. We hear these a lot. Hermeneutics is the science and the art of biblical interpretation. Understanding how to interpret the scripture. How do I present it? Hermes or the messenger, uh, you know, we get the Greek god Hermes. Uh, it, it's, it's the message. It's how do we... How do we offer that message? Um, and it's not as simple as translation. Translation sometimes can go wrong, actually, if you don't understand the message behind it. If, if I wanted to ask you how, uh, if I wanted to say, you know, how old are you in Spanish, if I literally translate that, que viejo estás, that's an insult. What I've just actually said was, you're really old because I just translated it word for word. So I would have to know that that's not how you ask it in Spanish. In Spanish you say, ¿Cuántos años tienes? Or, how many years do you have? Now that sounds really bizarre in English. What do you mean how many years I have? I don't have any with me, you know? This is how old I am, okay? But you wouldn't say, how old are you in Spanish? Because that would insult everybody. So sometimes you got, it's not just about translating something. 
It's about understanding the message behind it. What is it trying to communicate? Exegesis, the application or the principle of hermeneutics to discover the meaning of the text in its original setting. What is it really saying? It comes from the, the, the Greek word ex, echos or ex, to pull something out, to, to, to draw out the meaning. And, and, and that, the opposite of that is eisegesis, or even worse, narcissus. Okay, eisegesis is putting things in it and saying, well, I think the scripture means this, this, and this, and this is how I apply it. People love to do that with Revelation. Anytime somebody starts pulling out Revelation scriptures about what's happening in our world, whoa, be careful, okay? People love to do eisegesis with, 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 uh, they love to do eisegesis with Revelation instead of exegesis, you know, which is figuring out what does it actually say? And what is it telling me not what is my view of it and what can I put in there? And then narcissus, you could probably guess what that means. You know, that's when it's all about you, you know, being narcissistic. When, and, and people do that. You know, they well, I think this and I think that and it's all about my opinion and, and, and this tells me this. And listen, there's, there's a value and obviously you want to apply everything to yourself, but you don't want yourself to be the standard or the rule of interpretation, right, or understanding. It's not about what do I think. It's about what God thinks. You know, I think all of us sooner or later figure out that my opinions don't mean a whole lot in, 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 the, in the kingdom of God. What matters is God's opinion. What matters is Jesus' opinion. And walking with that humility is that I, it's not up to me. It's not what does Robert think. It's what does Jesus think. That's what matters, right? And expository preaching is, is and this, is a, this, is, this has been a buzzword in our fellowship for the last 10, 15 years, is, you know, there's different ways to preach. You can do topical preaching. You can do motivational preaching. You can do a lot of different kinds. Expository preaching is taking a scripture and just getting all the meaning out of it. That takes a lot of skill. That takes a lot of training, knowing how to just draw out. Let, what I always, guys that I'm training in the ministry, I always teach them, let the Bible preach. Get out of the way. You know, I'm a Bose speaker. At least I hope to be a Bose speaker. You know, it's a very clear, awesome speaker it doesn't play the music. It doesn't have a band. It doesn't have a singer. It just plays the music, right? I want God to be able to just speak his message through me. Let the Bible speak, not give my message to something. And that's what expository preaching is all about, is exposing or drawing out of the scriptures. What do the scriptures say? Not what do I think? So exegesis asks, what does it say? What does it say? What does the Bible actually say? Hermeneutics asks, what does it mean? What is, it, what is the message here? What is it trying to show me? Uh, a the, a theology asks, what does it show me about God? How does this fit with my understanding of God? What does this show me of God? What is God telling me when he says this or when he does this? An exposition is revealing all the above. You know, it's just learning how to dish that out. So, so there's a whole lot to teaching and preaching. There's a whole lot to opening our Bibles and just understanding it. That's kind of the, the, the shotgun of, you know, all that in, is involved in this. We have to remember that we are disciples. Amen? You know, disciples, that's a, that's a great word. That's part of what made our church so cutting edge. Now everybody talks about disciples. Every church uses disciple. But back when we started using disciple, people were like, what? Disciple? Are you, are you Buddhist? Are you Hindu? Or what? You know, it was such a rare word. 
even though it's all over the scriptures. And in fact, as we know, Christian is not all over the scriptures, but disciple is. We have to remember always, what does that mean? It means that we're students, right? Matheteos. It comes to, it's the same root as mathematics, right? It's to think through, to reason. It's a thinking person, somebody who's growing, who's learning, who's developing, who's evolving. Okay, that's a disciple, right? Disciple is constantly learning and growing. We, and, we, and we have to be careful, that, especially the older we get as disciples, which, you know, it's, it's, it's the miles, not the years. You know, somebody can be 23 years old and be an old disciple. Somebody can be 50 years old and be a young disciple. Meaning they're still learning, they're still growing, they're, they're evolving, right? They're not becoming old wineskins. That's the danger always. It can be with any person that goes to any church can become old wineskin. Meaning what? Meaning they're crusty and inflexible anymore. They won't examine their learning, they won't, they won't change, they won't adapt, they're just stuck. And then at the same time, we've also got to be careful because there's every wind of teaching out there, Right? There's all kinds of different teachings. So we have to protect our hearts, protect our minds, and, and guard the scriptures. And make sure everything we do and say should be tethered to scriptures. And there's a whole lot of philosophies and ideas and ideologies bouncing around. I mean, in the last 10 years, it's just exploded I would say culminating in the last two years, right? Of all these different philosophies and ideas, everything from religion to politics to social justice to everything, bouncing around, and it can get very confusing. So that's why we've got to keep our eyes on Scripture and our eyes on Jesus to, to, to help us get through this, right? Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God is continually transforming us, right? We're becoming, hopefully, more and more like Jesus. We're becoming more and more like God in the image of Christ. That means you don't stop growing, right? We're caterpillars, and we don't just stay caterpillars. We, we evolve, we, be, we go into the Christless stage, and then we hopefully become a butterfly, and then we fly, and, and we're constantly evolving spiritually. At least we should be, because God is transforming us. It's easy to get stuck. It's easy to get stuck in our ways. I remember um, Michelle's grandma, uh, she's, she's, you know, uh, she was a 70-something, you know, just traditional old Irish woman. And she would tell us, I was born in this religion. I've lived this religion. I'm going to die in this religion. Well, at 78 years old, she studied the Bible, became a, a disciple, and got baptized. You know, I mean, that's, that's, I was, that, she's a hero to me that she didn't let herself become old wine. Now, she had that thinking for a while, but she repented of that and got flexible. The fact is, God is still teaching us new things. Don't ever get, let yourself get to a point where you know it all. You know, where, well, you know, you're not going to teach me anything new. Yeesh. I think that's what Jesus is actually trying to do, you know, is teach us new things all the time. And we have our challenges, right? 2 Timothy 4, 3. For the time will come when people will not put up a sound doctrine, but instead to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Boy, how real is that right now? 
I mean, oh my gosh, I don't care what your belief is, there's a group out there preaching it. <laughs> there's a group out there teaching it. I mean, there's a whole group that are still teaching the world is flat. And they got scientists, they got all kinds of, every group has got their experts and their sciences and their, their scholars and all this stuff. There's just, it's crazy out there. And we've got to be careful and keep ourselves focused on scripture, right? And, and this is the challenge, staying new wine skin, um, staying current of, of things that we're learning, resisting social pressure and secular trends and dogmatism, you know, which are kind of the opposite. Secular trends are that every wind of teaching knocking us around. Dogmatism is getting stuck in our way. This is what I believe. No one's changing my mind. You know, I, no, I've got to keep learning and keep growing. I mean, I think I, I look back now. I've been a Christian 38 years. I look back at what I, how I understood everything 35 years ago. I've learned a lot. <laughs> and there are things that I did and said back then that I would never say now. I'm like, what was I thinking? Now, if I'm around in another 20 years, I'm going to look back at today and go, what was I thinking? Boy, I really didn't know that. I really didn't understand that. And I always warn people, remember that. In 10, 15 years, you're going to change. And you're going to grow. And you're not, so, so be careful what you're being stuck in. You know, there's, a, there's this uh, old illustration. It's this field in Alaska. And there's a big sign there in the, in the, in the summer rains it just turns into a big mud field. And then in the fall, it dries out and it hardens. And there's like several roads. And the sign says, choose your rut carefully. That's the, that's the lines that the wheels dig in. He says, because you'll be stuck for a long time. Choose your rut carefully. So we got to do that. We choose. We've got to be careful. What am I going to take my stances on? And what do I believe? And what am I still learning in, Right. Uh, the challenge of change. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I'm also part of a community that's learning and growing. And sometimes I might be a little bit on the front side of that, and sometimes I might be a little bit behind. I, I remember when we started clapping in the church. That was a big deal. The first service we clapped, I saw several older members get up and walk out and never come back. They were so horrified by the fact that the church was clapping. There's nothing in the Bible that says we can clap. You know, but they, they, and they, they took a stance. I remember when, when uh, we planted the church in Miami and we had the, the leaders together and Sam Lang said, the church, nobody danced in the church. Dancing was not allowed in the church. Nowhere. That was ungodly, sinful. Everybody had fallen to sin, be immoral and fall away. So... And I remember, you know, this is Miami. Miami is the capital of Latin America. It is the capital of the Caribbean. I mean, you'd have to chain people down to not let them dance, right? And Sam said, should we allow dancing? And without even thinking, I said, oh, no, no, no. I'm Latino. I know us. We'll all fall into sin. We start dancing. We'll start lusting and coveting and da, da, da. And, and Sam said, really, where, where in the scriptures does it say that? And I was like, oh. I've become a Church of Christer. I think like a Church of Christer. That's not in the scriptures. We allowed dancing. Church did awesome. You know, if we did great. We all survived it. Amen. We can survive dancing. But that was a big deal. I remember when we allowed instruments. That was huge. There were people who left our church because we started bringing in instrument, instruments. 
You know, some of you guys are like, whoa, you guys were really backwards. Well, I tell you what, in 30 years, some people are going to say that about you. Man, you guys were really Neanderthals, spiritual Neanderthals, you know. And we're growing, we're learning, we're learning how to shed our cultural biases, right? The lenses that we all wear, we, and we all have them, you know, the lenses we wear. And, and, you know, don't think you don't. In fact, the best way to approach the lenses we wear is to, to acknowledge, one, that we have them and to try to figure out what are they. You know, we, 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 we totally hurt ourselves in the church when we, I don't have any lenses on. You know, I'm American. I don't have lenses. The very fact that you're an American is a lens, right? How we see Christianity, how we see the Bible is going to be different than how somebody in Africa sees it or how somebody in China sees it or how somebody in another part of the world. And even whether you're rich or you're poor, the, the religious roots you have. Did you grow up Catholic? Did you grow up Protestant? Did you grow up Pentecostal? That's going to affect how you see the scriptures. Uh, the, the century we live in affects it, right? We live now. I tell you one thing. This is a very different century than when I became a Christian. I became a Christian in the 20th century. Man, that really makes me sound old, right? It's now the 21st century. It's a different world. It is a very different world. And I have to be able to understand how that applies. Now, one of the best examples of this was in, in, in Acts 17 when Paul preaches at the Areopagus. You know, it's, he preaches that powerful sermon, right? And, and it's the Areopagus. The smartest people in the world hang out and discuss ideas. And he preaches this amazing sermon. I don't know if you notice, he doesn't use one scripture. He never even uses the name Jesus. And it's an amazing sermon. Why? Because Paul understood his audience. He understood who am I talking to, how do they look at things, and how do I reach them. And yet he still preached the gospel. And, and he was creative. And we have to understand, sometimes, you know, we get dogmatic. Wait, you didn't use enough scriptures, bro. That's not a sermon. Or, you know, I, didn't, I, only, heard, I only counted you say Jesus three times. You're not... A, preaching a sermon. Well, you'd have to throw Paul out because he didn't use it at all, right? Um, what, that, we're, that we're Western people. We have Western Christianity, you know, and, and shock news here, uh, Jesus was not a Westerner. He was in the Middle East, not the Midwest, right? He was from the Middle East. Christianity is an Eastern religion. So we have to know that. It's, I'm super curious how Christianity, it's spreading the fastest place in the world is China right now. They say, I don't know who they are and I don't know how they counted them, but they say 10,000 Chinese a day turn to Jesus. And I think that's going to have a huge impact on Christianity. I'm curious because that's an Eastern culture, right? So they're going to bring in things that our Western culture doesn't understand. But these are good to know. that These are my lenses, the language I speak. You know, that we, we have roots. We all have roots, spiritual roots. Most of us come from the Catholic background. You say, well, I was never Catholic. If you dig back far enough in our lineage, we were Catholics at some point in, the, in our history. So we were Catholic, not Orthodox. And there was that split happened over a thousand years ago. And it does have an impact on how we see Jesus. We were, most of us came from Protestant, not Catholic. Well, maybe, maybe I don't know, maybe 50-50 here, but that makes a difference. Uh, most of us uh, have restoration history, not evangelical. You know, we're the International Church of Christ. It's a restoration church. Most of us come from a Church of Christ roots. I know you may have never been a member of a Church of Christ, but the fact that you're in the International Church of Christ means you've got strong Church of Christ influence. 
right? Not Christian church. Christian church, when they split in 1906, Christian church went and brought out the bands and started playing instruments. Church of Christ said, if you pull out an instrument, we'll kick you out of the church. You know, that's our history. That's why it was such a big deal. But we started using instruments. And, and most of us, of course, were ICLC, we're International Church of Christ, not the mainline Church of Christ. And we have a lot of things different. But it's important to know that. It's important to know. This is going to affect how I see things, right? How I understand. Our classic approach to hermeneutics is everything. It's called, it's, it's, it's a, it's called patternistic. Is the restoration churches. We have, our roots are, we're a group of people that in the eight, eight, mid-1800s, there was people from different, what, what was happening was in the, in the frontier of the United States, you know, if you built a church in this area, you didn't have time to build a Methodist, an Anglican, a Presbyterian, a Catholic. You just built one church and everybody went there. And so a movement was born to unify all Christians. And the rallying cry was to go by the scriptures and just call ourselves Christians. Call ourselves biblical names and draw everything out of the scripture. All that sound familiar? That's what we believe, right? Because that's we are the descendants of that. And what they said basically was everything should have a command. If the Bible says it, we do it. Amen? Can I get an amen for that? The Bible says it, we do it, right? Necessary inference, meaning that if, it, if, if there's something that the Bible doesn't say, but you can pretty much figure out that it would say that, right? Like, is there anywhere in the Bible says that you, a Christian can't do cocaine? Nothing. Can't show me one scripture that says cocaine is prohibited. But we can pretty much infer that if you can't be a drunkard, and you should never let anything dominate or master you, we could put cocaine in that category, right? Nobody's struggling thinking that that's biblically correct, right? It's a necessary inference. It's obvious, okay? Obviously, we know that. Um, and then, or sometimes it's example. Does it say anywhere in the Bible that we have to go to church on Sundays? But everybody does it. Why? Well, except the Seventh-day Adventists. But everybody else, why? Why? Well, because that's the example in the scriptures. They met on the first day of the week, which was Sunday. Not Monday, Sunday. And that's when they met. Why? Well, because most of the Christians were Jewish and they went to Sabbath. They went to the synagogue on the Sabbath and they, or, or they, they celebrated the Sabbath. So then Sunday was the first day available for them to gather. And so we follow that example. And I would say most of the time, that's a great way to approach things. Not always, but most of the time, it's great. The other thing that we have to understand is, as Westerners, is we like everything to be watertight. Thus saith the Lord. Give me the scripture that clarifies this point, that tells me what to do and what to think. And we love certainty, and we hate uncertainty. We don't like it when somebody says, I don't know what the Bible says. I mean, how many times have you ever shared that? I don't know what it says. No, we, we're like, no, I'll find you a scripture. You know, and I'll, I'll find one that's just like it and make it say that, you know, or something. We'll do some eisegesis. Because it makes us feel secure. It makes us feel like, okay, we know what we're talking about, right? And, and let me say this. All the scriptures about salvation and how to get to heaven, they're crystal clear. But there's a whole lot of other scriptures about things that some of them, well, you could see it this way, you could see it this way. And that's okay. We, we don't have to have all the answers. I figured out somewhere along the road that God keeps me on a need-to-know basis, right? If I don't need to know, he doesn't tell me. And if I need to know, it's in the scriptures, clear enough for me, right? Um, we sh I love this quote. This is Alan Henry, a 
incredible brother in Gainesville Church. He said, we should not let our culture define us, but we should not let, but we should not let our traditions hold us back, right? We don't do what society wants us to do. We do what the Bible tells us to do, right? But we also don't get held back by our traditions. We say, oh, we challenge the churches that have traditions. We don't have traditions. Oh, yes, we do. We have lots of our own traditions. And it's okay. There's nothing wrong with having traditions. As long as you know they're just traditions. They're not the word of God, right? Theological reputation of the churches of Christ is the blueprint model or the patternistic. You know, what is the basic question? That now, we're so, in a sense, indoctrinated in this, we don't even question it. And this is good. This is a good way of thinking. What is the New Testament pattern, right? We want to know. When somebody wants to know, you know, who runs the church? Well, we look to the scriptures. Who ran the church in the New Testament? We want to know, well, what do we believe about this? We look to the scriptures. What do the scriptures teach about this? What is the biblical pattern? What did the early church say or practice? Those are all things that that help us and keep us safe. There's a lot of wacky teachings out there. There's literally thousands of denominations. And I can tell you this, most of the denominations that are following false doctrine, it's because of a misunderstanding of scripture. It's because somebody didn't take the time to really investigate it, or their investigation drew them to the wrong conclusions because they didn't complete the investigation or they're relying on teachings from the 1800s or 1700s instead of what we understand today from the scriptures. Every decade we're growing as a people, as a planet, in our understanding of scripture. Um, so, you know, the classic line in a church crisis, show me the book, chapter, and verse, right? Which is a good conviction to have. Okay, bro, you're going to teach something new? Show me the book, chapter, and verse. Where do you see this in the scriptures? That's our standard. That's 95% of the time, it's a healthy practice. 95% of the time. Now some of you are like, wait, are you telling me sometimes we don't need to follow scriptures? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'll get to that. Simplistic view of hermeneutics. You got the Bible text and you apply it, right? Bible says turn left, we turn left. Bible says stand up, we stand up. Bible says sit down, we sit down. That's standard biblicist practice. Generally pretty good, not always accurate, right? Um, and I'll explain that. Don't throw any rocks at me yet. Um, we have our biblical text. We all tend to interpret things. And I know sometimes, I don't know, in the old studies, I don't know if people are still doing it, but we say, you don't interpret the scripture. You just do what it says. That's not really true. We interpret a lot of scripture. We have to interpret scriptures. Some of them don't make sense unless you interpret it and, and know how to apply it. So question, do we follow all the teachings of the Bible? Yes or no? Okay, I hear yeses and I hear noes. Okay, At least, yes and no, yeah. Um, Leviticus 11.10, here's a good scripture. But all, the, all creatures in the seas or streams that do not have fins and scales, whether among all the swarming things or among all the other living things in the water, you are to regard as unclean. In other words, you can't eat it. Well, that would include lobster, crab, and shrimp. Raise your hand if you've eaten lobster, crab, or shrimp in your life. Oh, you guys are in sin. You need to repent. No, but we don't follow this scripture. It says it loud and clear. There's no hermeneutical problem here. He's saying it very clearly not to do that. 
Leviticus 19.19, do not wear clothing, clothing woven of two kinds of material. Let's check your tags. What kind of material is it got? I think so you guys got mixed rayon and cotton and all kinds of stuff going on. Polyester, yeah. Or how about do not cut the hair at the side of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. Where's all your hair? It says don't do it, right? Why don't we obey? How do we choose? How do we choose? I love, I love poking the bear. You know, my, my son's 17th birthday, we went out and got matching tattoos. Faith and love. And man, I heard it. I heard it from people. Bro, don't you know that Leviticus 19 says you should not mark your body? Da, 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 da. Yeah, and I would say, okay, yeah, it does say that. And if you're going to follow Leviticus 19, then you got to stop shaving the side of your hair. you got to stop changing your, 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 picking your clothing right. What did Paul say? If you're going to follow the law, follow all of it. All of it. Or don't throw the law at me, basically, is what he's saying. So, of course, how do, why, why don't we follow that? Well, because we know, I don't have time to read it all, but verse 13, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Right? In other words, he's, and, and the word, the, the, the wording in Greek is really strong. I love it. It's, he, he said the first covenant, the first pact, which would be Leviticus 19, and all the other 613 laws, are obsolete. The, in, the, in the Greek, it's like, are demolished. They're like, destroyed. They're annihilated, you know? I love it. The language is very strong. In other words, you don't have to follow the Old Testament, right? Now, that doesn't mean we ignore the Old Testament. There's a lot of great principles to learn from, but we're not under the law. We have been set free, right? Um, do we obey? How about all the New Testament? Yes or no? Okay, I got a lot of yeses. Greet each other with a holy kiss. Greet each other with a holy kiss. Does he say that once? No. Romans 16, 16. 1 Corinthians 16, 20. 2 Corinthians 13, 12. 1 Thessalonians 5, 26. And say, well, it's a pandemic, bro. Does it say greet each other on a holy kiss if there's no pandemic? Shouldn't you be people of faith and just obey the Bible and let whatever happens happen? No, we, we, we know that there's things that we have to think through, right? We understand that there's some things that aren't literal. They're not something we necessarily have to do, right? We're selective literalists. That's why I said 95%, not 100%. Now that I, the Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you, should, you also should wash one another's feet. Is there any ambiguity in that? When's the last time you washed somebody's feet? Is there like, hey, if you feel like it, or hey, if it's convenient, or did the, if they bathed? No, it just says do it. Jesus said do it, but we don't do it, right? Because we understand that what's here is not the practical rule, but really the principle of serving each other. We understand that the greeting with a kiss was how they greeted each other. It's, it was a warm reception, and that's going to be different in different countries. When I go to Spain, it's a, everybody kisses. Even the brothers kiss, you know. And when I go to France, they kiss you twice, you know. And in some countries, they kiss you three times. One, two, three. I'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It'd throw me off. Boy, when I went to a European conference, it was really confusing. Do we high five? Do we kiss? Do we kiss once, twice, three times? You know, they have, there's different cultural, right? The Latinos, they love to hug each other and kiss each other, right? The, the, 
And, and, and you don't do that in all cultures, right? Some cultures would freak out if you did that. We are selective literalists, and that's okay. We're supposed to be. We're supposed to distinguish and discern what is it that I need to follow and what do I not need to follow. We don't expect women to cover their heads. I don't see any sisters with their heads covered. But we do expect women not to lead men. Well, why do we follow one scripture, not the other? Why do we apply this one as universal and this one as conditional and situational? Okay, that's, those are important questions. Now we're getting to the nitty-gritty, right? That, that Nacho Libre would say, the nitty-gritty here of, of what, what, what are the issues? How do we separate that, you know? Context is huge. Context. A brother was telling me that they were at the park, and his brother was there. They were playing Frisbee. And he went over to this car, and a woman was in the car, and he picked up a rock, and he smashed her window. And he grabbed her and yanked her out of the car. And we're like, what in the world? And he goes, oh, I forgot to tell you, the car was on fire, and she was knocked out. <laughs> oh, well, that totally changes how I view his brother, right? The context makes all the difference in the world. And so we need to know every scripture, what is the context? Why did he say this? What's behind this? To have an understanding. Otherwise, we easily jump to the wrong conclusions. What a horrible person. He broke her window? Somebody should arrest that man. No, somebody should give him a medal because he went to a car that was on fire and saved her, right? Always essential is a theological perspective. What is God doing here? What is God showing us here? You know, Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. What? So wait, wait. So now Jesus is teaching hatred? No, no. We know that, right? We know that Jesus is not teaching hatred. But is that what it says? Yeah, that's what it says. If you take it face value, it was like, what, was he just having a bad day? Was he in a bad mood? Because we know other times he said, if you do not love me more than your father, mother, brother, sister. But maybe this day he was just really mad and laid out hate. No, we, know, we understand the context. Why? Because we understand God. Our theology is clear. Our Christology. We understand who Jesus was. Jesus did not promote hatred. So clearly he didn't mean that face value. He meant something different, right? That's where it gets really challenging sometimes, is to be able to discern the difference, you know, of between what is meant and what is actually said. And that's where theological perspective can help you. And you don't just always take everything at face value. Sometimes we got to go dig, we got to dig deeper. You know, we got to, and sometimes we have to look at the overarching principles. Here's a good one, Acts 15. So, if you remember, this was the big debate. They were fighting over whether or not Gentiles had to become Jews. And the real key issue was, did all the brothers have to get circumcised or not, right? That's, that's, that was a really important issue to them. And, and, and so they have this big meeting, they have this big powwow. They all discuss it, the elders, the apostles, everybody discussed it. It says, and then uh, I think it was James saying, he said, it is my judgment, therefore, he's the one that gives the proclamation of what they came to. And he said, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles. In other words, they don't have to become Jews. And all the Gentile brothers say, 
Amen. We don't have to get circumcised. He says, instead, we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat, from meat, the meat strangled animals, and from blood. Okay? These were all things that highly offended the Jews. So basically they're saying, look, just don't do that, okay? Just, just stay away from that. You don't have to become Jews, but please, if you're going to have tacos, don't have carnitas, okay? Because the Jews are going to struggle with that. Have beef, have chicken, don't bring carnitas, all right? Because you're going to cause your brother to stumble. This, and, and keep in mind, we're talking about Jerusalem. What percentage of the church in Jerusalem was Jewish? 99.9, you know? Now, later on in Rome, the same issue is addressed, and guess what? It's a totally different conclusion. Because 99% of the church in Rome was Gentile. Well, I don't know if it was 99%, but most of the church. Remember the Jews had all been kicked out? Priscilla and Aquila got kicked out. They kicked all the Jews out of, out of Rome. And so for a while, the Roman church was all Gentiles. And then they got to come back. And they come back, and the brothers are eating carnitas. And it's like, wait a second. So Paul has to address that, you know, that, that no, they don't have to be Jews. But yes, you should just be respectful. Now get this. That's Acts 15. The very next chapter, Acts 16, Paul came to Derby and then Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived. We all know Timothy, young, stud, Christian, right? Whose mother was Jewish and believer, a believer whose father was Greek. So he's half and half. Not completely Jewish. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Wait a second. They just decided he didn't have to get circumcised. But yet they circumcised him. Why? Because it's what would help the gospel. Did he have to do it? No. But he did it anyways. Because, and, and then later on, they didn't circumcise Titus. You know, Titus was like, you know, I'm not preaching in any Jewish cities. I'm going to the Gentiles, you know. But, but you see how even though sometimes scripture can be crystal clear, sometimes we still do something different because it's what's best for the gospel. That's what an overarching principle is. Now, I got to say this. With an overarching principle, there's always a danger that you got to watch out for. It's called the slippery slope. Because once you say, well, we don't have to do this exactly what the scripture says. Ooh, whatever follows that is really tricky. Why don't we have to do it? What exactly is the reasoning here? Because that's the slippery slope. And people start talking about, well, it's, it's, is it a universal teaching or is it a situational teaching? And that's a slippery slope. Because what, I mean, you can throw everything in that category. Everything. In the Bible. Well, that's because they were in the first century and a guy wrote it. You know, it was a male Jew who wrote that. You, know, you, 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 could, you could do all kinds of things and start dismissing the scriptures. You know, is it prescriptive or is it descriptive? You know, when, 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 when Genesis talks about, uh, about the woman, I forget how it says it in English, uh, will want to dominate the man or something like that. I forget how he says it exactly in English. But basically, um, her will will be for her husband. I think in Hebrew, and, it, and it's basically saying that there's going to be a competition. Not saying that it's good, it's not saying that's what's supposed to happen, but that's what's going to happen. There's going to be a power struggle now. Okay, it's descriptive, not prescriptive, not saying this is what should happen, but saying this is what's going to happen, guys. And, but sometimes if we don't pay attention to the wording, we think, oh no, it's, descript it's prescriptive, it's telling us what to do. No, it's not. 
It's telling us what's going to happen. You know, and that's where, that, that's that slippery step. We've got to be really careful. And that's why, you know, when people just do like an hour of study and say, okay, I figured this out. Whoa, wait a second. How did you pass all these scholars and all these people who spent years trying to figure this out? You know, it's, it's, sometimes things are complicated. It's something inspired. It's something opinion. Paul says sometimes, I, Paul, say this. Sometimes he says, look, this is my opinion. This is not the Holy Spirit, it's me telling you this. Um, and again, the context. So watch for these overarching principles because sometimes they help us in being able to figure out, but also be aware. You know, sometimes you're going to see people that are, that, that, that I think some of us, especially when we're, when we're talking about generational differences, younger and older, that you look at older people and go, oh, they're so traditional, they're so scared of change, you know. And sometimes it's the slippery slope they're concerned about. Once you start saying, you know, that I don't have to follow the Bible because of this, this, or that, well, then you can start applying that to all kinds of things. You know, you'd be like, I think it was Thomas Jefferson who supposedly took a Bible and he cut out all the scriptures he didn't like. And that was his Bible. I mean, wouldn't everybody like to do that, right? And so this is the Bible. I, I don't like this, so I cut it out. But it's not right, right? So, and, 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 and again, let me just say back, go back to saying this, is that, there is a spectrum here. There's things that we're unsure of, and those are disputable matters. Exactly where the Bible lands. And then there's things that are absolute, and those are salvation issues. All the salvation issues, what does it take to be saved? They're clear. They're clear. You say, well, why is there so many different teachings out there? Because a lot of people don't even have that concept if it has to be in the Scripture. They'll, re they'll rely more on logic or reasoning or tradition or this is what I was taught when I was a little kid. And so when you sit down and show them the scriptures, and a lot of us went through that, just like a Priscilla and an Aquila, when they sat down with Apollos and showed him a proper understanding of baptism. It's there. It's there if we take the time to look. But I say that because some, because you hear all this about what it takes to study scripture. You take, how do we know anything is right? You know, the, 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 the basic principles and doctrines of Christianity are crystal clear. Just read them. They're, 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 God makes sure that they're understandable. There are other things that are not so clear, and even godly men and women will land in different places. There are godly, spiritual disciples of Jesus that will draw different conclusions. And you know what? That's okay. That's okay. If God wants it crystal clear, he makes it crystal clear, right? Um, Paul said this to the church in Rome. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. The backdrop, the context of this was the food they were eating. The brothers that were celebrating, that were following Jewish traditions... And they were following the holidays, you know, the, 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 the holy days of the, of the Jewish calendar. And the Gentiles were like, I'm not doing, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing a Seder. I'm not doing, you know, all this Jewish stuff. I'm not a Jew. And the, and the Jews were like, look, we've been doing this for a thousand years. You need to do it with us. And so Paul is teaching them not to judge each other based on what they eat. or what. And, and keep in mind, this is different than what was said in Acts 15 about abstaining from food sacrificed to idol. You see, 
All those bulls and calves and goats and sheep that were sacrificed in the Roman temples, well, on the back of the temple, they'd have a little market selling meat because you got all this meat, right? And it was really cheap. And so the brothers would go and they'd buy their meat. And then the Jews would go, hey, wait a second. That was sacrificed to Mars. You're going to eat a bull. You're going to eat meat that was sacrificed to a pagan god. And the Gentiles were like, yeah, what's the problem? It's just a steak, you know? And the Jewish brothers were like, no, it's unclean. You can't do that. And they would have that fight. And Paul's saying, look, Stop passing judgment on each other. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of your brother or sister. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. That's that overarching principle. What is good for the gospel, what is good for the church? What causes unity? And if it means I have to give up some of my rights, amen, if it's what's going to help the church be unified. So whatever you believe, he says, about these things, and I love this. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. This is the, the original don't, don't, don't tell, don't hush, or what was that? Don't hush, don't say, you know, don't ask, don't say anything. He's just saying, look, just keep it between you and God, all right? Don't throw this out to the brothers and cause a big problem. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. If it's not right for you, then don't do it. But don't throw that on the whole church. And don't judge and condemn your brother or sister because they think differently than you do. Have the humility to understand that we're all learning. We're all growing. The overarching principles, love, unity, mercy, uh, spreading the gospel, advancing the kingdom of God, they need to be what guides us along always. And especially when it comes to disputable matters. It's a dangerous world right now where people are drawing all kinds of lines and dividing up according to political philosophies, social philosophies, economic philosophies, and all these things. We cannot let Satan do that to the church. We, we can't. This is the problem they had in Rome, and Paul would have none of it. He said, look, give up your rights and be unified. Do whatever is best for the church. You know, Paul said this classic line. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to wrap it up here. Um, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. That's a quote, by the way. This is what they were saying in the church. You can't tell me what not to do. I have the right to do anything. But he said, but not everything is beneficial. We need to think about is what I, I have the right to say this. I have the right to do this or not do this. But is it beneficial for me to exercise my right? I have the right to do anything, he says, but not everything is constructive. Is what I'm doing going to build up the church? Is it going to build up the brothers? Or by me taking my stance about my personal right, going to cause problems in the church, going to divide me from brothers and sisters. The interesting thing about coming back to face-to-face -face meetings is we don't necessarily all feel the same about each other. A lot of things were ugly, ugly things were said on Facebook and other social media that has divided brothers and sisters. And it can be whether a political thing, a social thing, or even our understanding of the role of women in the church. We can't let that happen. We, this, this is what Paul was uh, appealing to. So um, I'm going to have to stop here, right? We're out of time. Do the last part? Okay, I'm going to zip to this kind of fast. What I wanted to do was give one example of, a, of, of one of those scriptures that people are wrestling with. And I'm, gonna pick, I'm picking the worst one, the toughest one, okay? Which you probably already know which one that's going to be. But the three, I'm skipping the four, the three 
um, views of women's leadership in the church and family traditionally have been the egalitarian view. Men and women are completely equal. No order is mandated or required in marriage, family, or church life. No one is over anybody. Everybody is equal. That's the egalitarian view. The complementarian view, women and men are equals and have different but complementary roles and responsibilities in marriage, family life, and religious leadership. And then the third one, which is the, the, the stinky one, you know, the archaic traditional view, men are superior to women, theory and practice, in theory and practice. And, you know, we can laugh at that one, but you know what? That dominated church culture for thousands of years. That was literally taught for hundreds of years. Well, Eve was weak, she sinned, pulled Adam into trouble, the whole world fell apart, and it was Eve's fault, right? And that's, that's, that was strongly believed. And, and she got, and all the women got blamed for that. And so that was used by, of course, dominant men to keep women in their place. Is this what they thought, right? And as the world has changed, we're going back and looking at these scriptures. Wait, is that really what that's saying? Is that really what's there? What's the context? What is, what is, what is the wording here? What is that? So I'm picking this tough one. This is, to me, the toughest of all of them, right? 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first and Eve. And Adam was the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Okay, so this is the most in-your-face one in the New Testament. And I can feel the... You know, the, the, the tension rise in the room, okay? And, and the, I'm picking on this one because it's a really good one. A good example, I should say. You know, uh, we could easily say, oh, Paul, he's just, you know, he's a 30, he's an old Jewish guy. Of course he's going to. But the problem is, okay, later on he says, this is what he teaches everywhere. And he also says, he refers to the Old Testament. So that kind of takes it out of the situational category. He's, this is this is very much set up like a universal teaching, like a universal. The question is, is it universal? Is it absolute? And that's that's. I'm I'm just I'm I'm going for it here. Okay, this is the one that this is the one that separates from you know, the you know the I don't know what I don't want to use the wrong analogy. But, so, and this is one where you got to dig into the word into the language. To get all the, the, the subtleties in here, Gune, Hexuxia, Manatheoto, and Pase, Upostage, Didaskein, De Gunaiki, Un Epitep, I gotta look at it, I can't see it that far, Ude Authentin, Andros Al Einai, and Hexuxia, Adam, Garprotos, Elathese, Ete Eva. Okay, you got it, right? You got that? Now you understand it. Okay, we'll move on. No, just kidding. Okay, so there's key words here. And these are the words that everybody's analyzing. Okay, we've got, we've got hesukia, which is basically quiet, you know, quiet, be quiet. That the woman, let me, let me go to the English, back to the English. So a woman should learn in quietness. The question is, what does quiet mean? Does it mean, now, the old archaic model was they can't say anything. There's no way that could be right because he also talks about prophet, women prophesying in church, waiting your turn to speak in tongues. So clearly that's not what he means. 
So what does he mean? Well, if you take the context and there's, there's other clues, you know, this thing called the Roman, the new woman in Rome. And this was, there was a rising upper middle class of women who were kind of power brokers. And, and it was known that some of them were in the church and they were pretty strong charactered and pretty loud. Okay. So is, is, is that what he's addressing? There was, and in Ephesus, you had the whole, the temple of Diana was there. And, and a lot of high-powered women that were running things. And, and so was that what he's addressing here? Um, but we know it's not silent as in don't speak, don't say anything. Because he talks about the women prophesying and speaking in tongues. And he says specifically men and women, right? Um, the word uputaje, uh, the, 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 what, what we get submissive, right? There's another one. Does that mean that they're always under men and they always only do what men say? That is the traditional view, right? Um, let, me, let me pull up another scripture, though. But this is interesting. Same word. Same word. Oh, no, no. Back up. Let me back up. Uh, can I back up? Okay. Uh, Althenteo, which is um, having authority, right? I do not permit a woman to. So these are the three words that get snagged on. Let's look at them in, another, in some other context. The wife does not have the authority, okay, exousiaso, the same word, authority, over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, which way? The same way. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Wait a second. Now he's saying that the husband has to yield to the wife, has to submit to her. Yeah, so is it an absolute that the woman always submits to men? No, clearly it can't be, because here he's saying the other way around. Okay, and then in Ephesians 5.21, which is scripture right before it, but usually nobody starts at 21. They start with, wives, submit to your husband. But right before that, he says, submit to one another. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wait a second. Surely he means just the women. No, he didn't say that. One another means there's more than one, right? One another. So is it an absolute to say that? No, but is that what traditionally in churches is believed? Yes. But that's why we got to look at the context. We got to look at the language. Is there any other times that's being used? You know, even the word, um, well, I already said about the who submits to one, about the quiet. You know, we know it doesn't mean silence. We know the submission is applied different ways. Even the word authenteu is, can be used to be, to not, not to mean authority, like don't have authority, but can also be used to being don't dominate. Don't be domineering. Or maybe the modern vernacular would be don't be bossy. You know, don't be bossy. And we know that there was an issue with high-powered women coming in and being bossy. So is that what he's saying? Well, that would change very much how we view all this. But for hundreds, maybe even thousands of years, it's always been taught at face value. This is very clear. Women submit. Women no authority, you can't teach, you can't be over a man. What I would say is, well, okay, just basic hermeneutics, does that always apply? Is that an absolute? Does God never allow women to lead? Does he never have a woman over a man? Well, there are examples, right? We have Phoebe, who we don't know what she was. Now, some people say she's a deaconess. We don't know that for sure. Because whether deacon is an adjective, a verb, or a noun makes all the difference, right? We don't know that it was a noun. So he, he may have been just describing her, but what we do know is that she was the patron of prostatis, 
means she was the one who funded and in charge of this. And if you took 20 scholars, biblical scholars, and asked them, what is the most important letter in the New Testament? They'd have probably, 19 of them would say the book of Romans. So here, Phoebe is entrusted to take the book of Romans. And whoever the person that would go around taking it from church to church, house church to house church, would come in, they'd read it, and give it, and then they'd move on to the next house church. That is a huge role. Obviously, somebody who thinks women should remain silent and be submissive all the time would not give it to a woman, right? So that's huge. Junia, right? It says they are outstanding. He's listing all these different people. They're outstanding among the apostles. Okay, what exactly does he mean among the apostles? That she's one of the apostles or that she's hanging out with the apostles? Answer is, I don't know. I don't know. But we know she's outstanding. We know she's amazing. And you got Priscilla and Aquila. Always, what, what generally always happens is when you have two people, you put the primary person at the beginning. So you say Paul and Silas, not Silas and Paul. Priscilla and Aquila. Not Aquila and Priscilla. So we, we, know, there's, we, know, we all know great couples where the woman is clearly the stronger personality or the stronger leader. Okay, and that happens, and that was probably what was happening here. And she took, she and, 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 and Aquila took Apollos aside and taught him, but she's listed first. That means something. That means something. So that means that I would be hesitant to apply 1 Timothy 2 in all situations. Even though face value, that is what he's saying. There's no doubt about that. He's absolutely saying that. But... Is that what it means, that it applies absolutely? I don't think so. Does it mean that women should never lead men? Well, we know that can't be true. Deborah, anybody heard of Deborah? She was a judge of Israel, a commander. Now, I've heard, this shows our bias, I've heard preachers in our fellowship say, you know, Barak was a wimp, so he had to go to Deborah. And tell her, Where does it say that Barak was a wimp? Does it say that anywhere? That's our assumption. The only reason he would let a woman lead is he must have been wimpy. Garbage. Maybe he was awesome and she was awesome. And God put her in charge. And if he's such a wimp and such a lousy leader, why is he listed in Hebrews 11 with all the great heroes? I don't think he was a wimp. I think that's our bias. Right? Esther, this little teenage beauty queen, saves Israel. Saves all the Jews. If God didn't want women in leadership, why didn't he just use Mordecai? Or somebody else. Or Hulda. This is a great one. Hulda. How many, have you ever heard of Hulda? She's the, the, the prophet who, she's the prophetess, the prophet who gave direction and instruction to who? Josiah the king and Hilkiah the high priest. What are the two highest, most authoritative roles in Israel? King and high priest. Who do they go to for help? Who do they call? Ghostbuster? No. They call Hulda. And she's the one that directs them. So is that an absolute in the sense that it always applies? No, definitely not. Because we got plenty. If that's an absolute, if 1 Timothy 2 is an absolute, then God's in sin. Because he's put a lot of women in charge at different times. Now, is that what usually happens most of the time? No. I mean, how many of the apostles were women? None of them were. 
Okay, so for whatever reason, and I'm not going to say what reason. Some, I can tell you what some people say, well, it's because it was a male-dominated culture. And you can't put women to go preach the, 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 the gospel because the men won't listen. And I mean, they were, women weren't even allowed to be witnesses in a court case because they were considered completely unreliable, emotional, and unhonest, and not dishonest. And yet, Jesus, who did he have be the first witnesses of the resurrection? Mary, Mary, and Mary, right? The Tres Marias, right? Who's the first one to go proclaim Jesus is risen? The first evangelist, in a sense. Mary, Mary, and Mary, right? Okay, so clearly God doesn't see things the way we do, right? His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And we have to be careful not to squeeze him in. But it doesn't take away the fact that that is how God moved, right? He did choose 12 men. He did choose. So, so do you see a sensitivity to the world and what's happening in the world and where people are at? Just like Timothy getting circumcised, just like any of these issues. So I'm going to close out with this one. Um, so in Christ Jesus, you are children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither, and this is huge, this is a big one. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. The whole world was divided for them, Jew or Gentile. He said, not anymore. Neither Jew nor Gentile. Neither slave or free. The whole world was either free or a slave. Not anymore, not before God. Nor is there male and female. We have no problem with the first two. It's the third one we have a problem with. For you are all, what? One in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So, I'm not saying this or that, or this is how we need to do things, or this is who should preach on Sunday, or this. I'm saying it's more complex than we oftentimes think. And we have to approach it with humility, and we always have to keep the, the overarching principles, like love, unity, working together, you know. And the church, it's going to continually evolve. It's not what it was 25 years ago. How many of you have been Christians more than 25 years? Okay, so you remember probably, actually it's probably been more like 30 years, when we allowed women to serve communion. And that was a big deal, you know. When, I mean, just dumb things when we started bringing instruments in church. And literally there were people who walked out and left the church because of it. I'm going back to the church of Christ. And, and, and so change, it rarely happens overnight. God works through change sometimes over hundreds of years. And if we're impatient and unwilling to wait, well, we're going to have problems. Because God is willing to wait. But God is always pushing us forward to make changes and keep growing. So I'll stop there. Thank you for listening to The Deeper Dive by the OC Church of Christ. If you want to get connected to us or want to donate to the program, go to our website, occhurchofchrist.com or through our social media at the OC Church. Join us next time for our next Deeper Dive.